Chapter 11 The Mountains of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Mountains of California by John Muir. Chapter 11 The River Floods. The Sierra rivers are flooded every spring by the melting of the snow as regularly as the famous Old Nile. They begin to rise in May, and in June high-water mark is reached. But because the melting does not go on rapidly over all the fountains, high and low, simultaneously, and the melted snow is not reinforced at this time of year by rain, the spring floods are seldom very violent or destructive. The Thousand Falls, however, and the Cascades in the canyons are then in full bloom, and sing songs from one end of the range to the other. Of course the snow on the lower tributaries of the rivers is first melted, then that on the higher fountains most exposed to sunshine, and about a month later the cooler, shadowy fountains send down their treasures, thus allowing the main trunk streams nearly six weeks to get their waters hurried through the foothills and across the lowlands to the sea. Therefore very violent spring floods are avoided, and will be as long as the shading, restraining forests last. The rivers of the north half of the range are still less subject to sudden floods, because their upper fountains in great part lie protected from the changes of the weather beneath thick folds of lava, just as many of the rivers of Alaska lie beneath folds of ice, coming to the light farther down the range in large springs, while those of the high Sierra lie on the surface of solid granite, exposed to every change of temperature. More than 90% of the water derived from the snow and ice of Mount Shasta is at once absorbed and drained away beneath the porous lava folds of the mountain, where mumbling and groping in the dark they at length find larger fissures and tunnel-like caves from which they emerge, filtered and cool, in the form of large springs, some of them so large they give birth to rivers that set out on their journeys beneath the sun without any visible intermediate period of childhood. Thus, the Shasta River issues from a large lake-like spring in Shasta Valley, and about two-thirds of the volume of the McLeod River gushes forth suddenly from the face of a lava bluff in a roaring spring seventy-five yards wide. These spring rivers of the north are of course shorter than those of the south whose tributaries extend up to the tops of the mountains. Fall River, an important tributary of the pit or upper Sacramento, is only about ten miles long, and is all falls, cascades, and springs from its head to its confluence with the pit. Bountiful springs, charmingly embowered, issue from the rocks at one end of it. A snowy fall a hundred and eighty feet high thunders at the other, and a rush of crystal rapids sing and dance between. 
Of course, such streams are but little affected by the weather. Sheltered from evaporation, their flow is nearly as full in autumn as in the time of general spring floods, while those of the high Sierra diminish to less than the hundredth part of their springtime prime, shallowing in autumn to a series of silent pools among the rocks and hollows of their channels, connected by feeble, creeping threads of water, like the sluggish sentences of a tired writer, connected by a drizzle of ands and buts. Strange to say, the greatest floods occur in winter, when one would suppose all the wild waters would be muffled and chained in frost and snow. The same long, all-day storms of the so-called rainy season in California that give rain to the lowlands, give dry frosty snow to the mountains. But at rare intervals warm rains and warm winds invade the mountains and push back the snow line from 2,000 feet to 8,000, or even higher, and then come the big floods. I was usually driven down out of the high Sierra about the end of November, but the winter of 1874 and 1875 was so warm and calm that I was tempted to seek general views of the geology and topography of the Basin of Feather River in January, and I had just completed a hasty survey of the region, and made my way down to winter quarters, when one of the grandest flood storms that I ever saw broke on the mountains. I was then in the edge of the main forest belt at a small foothill town called Knoxville, on the divide between the waters of the Feather and Yuba rivers. The cause of this notable flood was simply a sudden and copious fall of warm wind and rain on the basins of these rivers at a time when they contained a considerable quantity of snow. The rain was so heavy and long sustained that it was, of itself, sufficient to make a good wild flood, while the snow which the warm wind and rain melted on the upper and middle regions of the basin was sufficient to make another flood equal to that of the rain. Now these two distinct harvests of flood waters were gathered simultaneously and poured out on the plain in one magnificent avalanche. The basins of the Yuba and Feather, like many others of the Sierra, are admirably adapted to the growth of floods of this kind. Their many tributaries radiate far and wide, comprehending extensive areas, and the tributaries are steeply inclined, while the trunks are comparatively level. While the flood storm was in progress, the thermometer at Knoxville ranged between 44 degrees and 50 degrees, and when warm wind and warm rain fell simultaneously, on snow contained in basins like these, both the rain and that portion of the snow which the rain and wind melt are at first sponged up and held back until the combined mass becomes sludge, which at length suddenly dissolving slips and descends altogether to the trunk channel, 
and since the deeper the stream the faster it flows, the flooded portion of the current above overtakes the slower foothill portion below it, and all sweeping forward together with a high, overcooling front, debouches on the open plain with a violence and suddenness that at first seem wholly uncountable. The destructiveness of the lower portion of this particular flood was somewhat augmented by mining gravel in the river channels, and by levees which gave way after having at first restrained and held back the accumulating waters. These exaggerating conditions did not, however, greatly influence the general result, the main effect having been caused by the rare combination of flood factors indicated above. It is a pity that but few people meet and enjoy storms so noble as this in their homes in the mountains, for spending themselves in the open levels of the plains, they are likely to be remembered more by the bridges and houses they carry away than by their beauty or the thousand blessings they bring to the fields and gardens of nature. On the morning of the flood, January 19th, all the feather and nuba landscapes were covered with running water. Muddy torrents filled every gulch and ravine, and the sky was thick with rain. The pines had long been sleeping in sunshine. They were now awake, roaring and waving with the beating storm, and the winds sweeping along the curves of hill and dale, streaming through the woods, surging and gurgling on the tops of rocky ridges, made the wildest of wild storm melody. It was easy to see that only a small part of the rain reached the ground in the form of drops. Most of it was thrashed into dusty spray, like that into which small waterfalls are divided when they dash on shelving rocks. Never have I seen water coming from the sky in denser or more passionate streams. The wind chased the spray forward in choking drifts, and compelled me again and again to seek shelter in the dell copses and back of large trees to rest and catch my breath. Wherever I went, on ridges or in hollows, enthusiastic water still flashed and gurgled about my ankles, recalling a wild winter flood in Yosemite when a hundred waterfalls came booming and chanting together and filled the grand valley with a sea-like roar. After drifting an hour or two in the lower woods, I set out for the summit of a hill nine hundred feet high, with a view to getting as near the heart of the storm as possible. In order to reach it I had to cross Dry Creek, a tributary of the Yuba that goes crawling along the base of the hill on the northwest. It was now a booming river, as large as a Tuolumne, at ordinary stages, its current brown with mining mud, washed down from many a claim, and mottled with sluice boxes, fence rails, and logs that had long lain above its reach. A slim footbridge stretched across it, now scarcely above the swollen current. 
Here I was glad to linger, gazing and listening, while the storm was in its richest mood, the grey rain flood above, the brown river flood below. The language of the river was scarcely less enchanting than that of the wind and rain. The sublime overboom of the main bouncing, exalted current, the swash and gurgle of the eddies, the keen dash and clash of heavy waves breaking against rocks, and the smooth, downy hush of shallow currents feeling their way through the willow thickets of the margin. And amid all this varied throng of sounds, I heard the smothered bumping and rumbling of boulders on the bottom as they were shoving and rolling forward against one another in a wild rush. After having lain still for probably one hundred years or more, the Glad Creek rose high above its banks and wandered from its channel out over many a briery sand flat and meadow. Alders and willows waist deep were bearing up against the current with nervous trembling gestures, as if afraid of being carried away, while supple branches bending confidingly. Dipped lightly and rose again, as if stroking the wild waters in play. Leaving the bridge and passing on through the storm thrash woods, all the ground seemed to be moving. Pine tassels, flakes of bark, soil, leaves, and broken branches were being swept forward, and many a rock fragment, weathered from exposed ledges, was now receiving its first rounding and polishing in the wild streams of the storm. On they rushed through every gulch and hollow, leaping, gliding, working with a will, and rejoicing like living creatures. Nor was the flood confined to the ground. Every tree had a water system of its own spreading far and wide, like miniature Amazons and Mississippis. Toward midday, cloud, wind, and rain reached their highest development. The storm was in full bloom, and formed, from my commanding outlook on the hilltop, one of the most glorious views I ever beheld. As far as the eye could reach, above, beneath, around, wind-driven rain filled the air like one vast waterfall. Detached clouds swept imposingly up the valley, as if they were endowed with independent motion and had special work to do in replenishing the mountain wells, now rising above the pine tops, now descending into their midst, fondling their arrowy spires and soothing every branch and leaf with gentleness in the midst of all the savage sound and motion. Others keeping near the ground glided behind separate groves, and brought them forward into relief with admirable distinctness, all passing in front, eclipsed whole groves in succession, pine after pine melting in their grey fringes and bursting forth again, seemingly clearer than before. The forms of storms are in great part measured, and controlled by the topography of the regions where they rise and over which they pass. When, therefore, we attempt to study them from the valleys, 
or from gaps and openings of the forest. We are confounded by a multitude of separate and apparently antagonistic impressions. The bottom of the storm is broken up into innumerable waves and currents that surge against the hillsides like sea waves against a shore, and these, reacting on that nether surface of the storm, erode immense cavernous hollows and canyons, and sweep forward the resulting detritus in long trains, like the moraines of glaciers. But, as we ascend, these partial, confusing effects disappear, and the phenomena are beheld united and harmonious. The longer I gazed into the storm, the more plainly visible it became. The drifting cloud detritus gave it a kind of visible body, which explained many perplexing phenomena, and published its movements in plain terms while the texture of the falling mass of rain rounded it out and rendered it more complete. Because raindrops differ in size, they fall at different velocities and overtake and clash against one another, producing mist and spray. They also, of course, yield unequal compliance to the force of the wind, which gives rise to a still greater degree of interference and passionate gusts sweep off clouds of spray from the groves like that torn from wave-tops in a gale. All these factors of irregularity, indensity, colour, and texture of the general rain mass tend to make it the more appreciable and telling. It is then seen as one grand flood rushing over bank and brae, bending the pines like weeds, curving this way and that, whirling in huge eddies in hollows and dells, while the main current pours grandly over all, like ocean currents over the landscapes that lie hidden at the bottom of the sea. I watched the gestures of the pines while the storm was at its height, and it was easy to see that they were not distressed. Several large sugar pines stood near the thicket, in which I was sheltered, bowing solemnly and tossing their long arms as if interpreting the very words of the storm, while accepting its wildest onsets with passionate exhilaration. The lions were feeding. Those who have observed sunflowers feasting on sunshine during the golden days of Indian summer know that none of these gestures express thankfulness. Their celestial food is too heartily given, too heartily taken to leave room for thanks. The pines were evidently accepting the benefactions of the storm in the same whole-souled manner, and when I looked down among the budding hazels, and still lower to the young violets and fern tufts on the rocks, I noticed the same divine methods of giving and taking, and the same exquisite adaptions of what seems an outbreak of violent and uncontrollable force to the purposes of beautiful and delicate life. Calms like sleep come upon landscapes, just as they do on people and trees, and storms awaken them in the same way. 
In the dry midsummer of the lower portion of the range, the withered hills and valleys seemed to lie as empty and expressionless as dead shells on a shore. Even the highest mountains may be found occasionally dull and uncommunicative, as if in some way they had lost countenance and shrunk to less than half their real stature. But when the lightnings crash and echo in the canyons, and the clouds come down wreathing and crowning their bald snowy heads, every feature beams with expression, and they rise again in all their imposing majesty. Storms are fine speakers, and tell all they know, but their voices of lightning, torrent, and rushing wind are much less numerous than the nameless still. Small voices too low for human ears, and because we are poor listeners, we fail to catch much that is fairly within reach. Our best rains are heard mostly on roofs, and winds in chimneys, and when by choice or compulsion we are pushed into the heart of a storm, the confusion made by cumbersome equipments, and nervous haste, and mean fear, prevent our hearing any other than the loudest expressions. Yet we may draw enjoyment from storm sounds that are beyond hearing, and storm movements we cannot see. The sublime world of planets around their suns is as silent as raindrops oozing in the dark among the roots of plants. In this great storm, as in every other, there were tons and gestures inexpressibly gentle manifested in the midst of what is called violence and fury, but easily recognized by all who look and listen for them. The rain brought out the colors of the woods with delightful freshness, the rich brown of the bark of the trees and the fallen burrs and leaves and dead ferns, the greys of rocks and lichens, the light purple of swelling buds, and the warm yellow greens of the libocedrus and mosses. The air was steaming with delightful fragrance, not rising and wafting past in separate masses, but diffused through all the atmosphere. Pine woods are always fragrant but most so in spring when the young tassels are opening, and in warm weather when the various gums and balsams are softened by the sun. The wind was now chafing their innumerable needles, and the warm rain was steeping them. Monadella grows here in large beds in the openings, and there is plenty of laurel in dells, and manzanita on the hillsides, and the rosy, fragrant chamobatia carpets on the ground almost everywhere. These, with the gums and balsams of the woods, form the main local fragrance fountains of the storm. The ascending clouds of aroma, wind-rolled and rain-washed, became pure like light and travelled with the wind as part of it. Toward the middle of the afternoon the main flood cloud lifted along its western border, revealing a beautiful section of the Sacramento Valley, some twenty or thirty miles away, brilliantly sunlighted and glistering with rain sheets, as if paved with silver. 
Soon afterward, a jagged bluff-like cloud with a sheer face appeared over the valley of the Yuba, dark-colored and roughened with numerous furrows, like some huge larboard table. The blue coast range was seen stretching along the sky like a beveled wall, and the somber, craggy Marysville butts rose impressively out of the flooded plain like islands out of the sea. Then the rain began to abate, and I sauntered down through the dripping bushes, revealing in the universal vigor and freshness that inspired all the life about me. How clean and unworn and immortal the woods seemed to be, the lofty cedars in full bloom laden with golden pollen, and their washed plumes shining, the pines rocking gently and settling back into rest, and the evening sunbeams spangling on the broad leaves of the madronas, their tracery of yellow boughs relieved against dusky thickets of chestnut oak, liverworts, lycopodiums, ferns were exulting in glorious revival, and every moss that had ever lived seemed to be coming crowding back from the dead to clothe each trunk and stone in living green. The steaming ground seemed fairly to throb and tingle with life. Smilac, fritillaria, saxifrage, and young violets were pushing up as if already conscious of the summer glory, and innumerable green and yellow buds were peeping and smiling everywhere. As for the birds and squirrels, not a wing or tail of them was to be seen while the storm was blowing. Squirrels dislike wet weather more than cats do. Therefore they were at home, rocking in their dry nests. The birds were hiding in the dells out of the wind, some of the strongest of them pecking at acorns and manzanita berries, but most were perched on low twigs, their breast feathers puffed out and keeping one another company through the hard time as best they could. When I arrived at the village about sundown, the good people bestirred themselves, pitying my bedraggled condition as if I were some benumbed castaway, snatched from the sea, while I, in turn, warm with excitement and reeking like the ground, pitied them for being dry and defrauded of all the glory that nature had spread round about them that day. End of chapter 11